Hello, welcome to The Freedom Factor, a podcast dedicated to exploring freedom and truth. From medical freedom, to freedom of speech and movement, to religious and spiritual freedom. In a time when our freedoms are being threatened at every turn, many of us are forming a collective space where we can share truth and knowledge without the fear of being canceled or censored. Fortunately, as we've seen throughout history, there are those brave souls who dare to speak out and stand against the tyranny that is threatening to overtake all of us. You will meet some of those brave souls here on The Freedom Factor. I'm your host, Oliver Bardwell. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, Iowans for Freedom. I'm Oliver Bardwell, and I have a special guest with us today, Dr. Molly James. I'm not going to read a big bio for her. I'm going to let her introduce herself. We're going to talk about COVID mandates, uh, early protocol or lack thereof, and things that need to change quickly. So welcome, Molly. Thanks so much for joining us on short notice. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad it worked out today. For sure. So tell our um, listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, I'm originally from Sheraton, Iowa. So Iowa went through and through. Um, I went to Drake. I went to Des Moines University. I trained at Mercy Medical Center in Des Moines in general surgery. And then I went out and did a critical care fellowship at the University of Minnesota. Um, so I practiced uh, trauma surgery for about the first six years of my career. And then around 2016, I actually switched focus and just did critical care and added functional medicine to that. So I was kind of on the front edge of this pandemic as far as I went out to New York City when things were bad out there. Um, I wanted to see what they were doing on the front lines so I could bring it back to the Midwest, expecting that the virus would hit here and we would see similar things. Um, So I basically went from St. Louis, I'm from the Midwest now, um, to New York City back and forth for about 18 months working the pandemic. So I went through about three or four different surges. Wow. What was, what was it like out there in New York City? So literally when I flew out, it was April of 2020. Um, I had just recovered from COVID myself. Um, at that time, we were kind of hearing about doctors and nurses dying. Um, the plane had five people on it. And when I went to LaGuardia Airport, it was completely silent like a library. And my luggage was the only one on the luggage carousel. So it was extremely surreal landing in the biggest city in the world. Um, And when I went to the hospital, yeah, when I went to the hospital, the first one I went to out there, um, they generally have about eight patients on a ventilator, eight to 10. Um, At the time they had 75 vented patients in their hospital. So it was as bad as as the news portrayed it at the beginning. Interesting. And how did that change? So that surge lasted pretty much through June, and then things died off out there over the summer. Um, If you remember in the fall, things picked up here, and we kind of had a surge through St. Louis area and Des Moines. Um, Then it kind of died down around this time last year, and New York had another surge at the beginning of 2021. So we had another three or four rough months out there as that second Delta, probably the Delta wave came through. Um, So... It did evolve. It did slow down a little bit. Um, 
we were able to handle capacity. We never got to over capacity like we did the first time for sure. How did, uh, so how, what did you see as far as early treatment? And I know that you're now a big proponent proponent of like an early treatment protocol, whereas, you know, the norm is to say, oh, go get your fluids, go home until your lips are blue and then go to the hospital. What are you doing differently that's been so successful with your patients? Yeah. So um, in September, I was fired from all three jobs. Um, I lost my hospital privileges in New York because I didn't have a vaccine passport after going there to help and volunteering. And then I took a job out there. So I had been going back and forth. Um, And then the hospital in St. Louis um, put me on suspension because I wouldn't do the mandatory testing. And my virtual ICU job in St. Louis area also terminated me because they wouldn't grant an exemption when I was working from my kitchen. Wow. So you refused to get the shot and you refused to get testing. Yeah, I didn't need the shot because I am naturally immune. I got the infection from a patient at the very beginning. Um, So I was able to focus on early treatment. And I began hearing about early treatment as early as about this time last year in January. Over the Christmas break, I heard Pierre Corey's Senate testimony about ivermectin. And before that, I'd heard about hydroxychloroquine, but we had used that in the ICU up front, and we really didn't see a benefit for that, which makes perfect sense in hindsight. Um, The only things that had made sense in the ICU that were working when we added steroids, which again was Dr. Corey's, uh, one of his publications based on that, and then when we added blood thinners. Um, So so when you say it makes sense in hindsight, do you mean that it needed to be used earlier than when they were in the ICU? Well, when you understand the disease process, it makes sense that steroids and blood thinners would work. Right. They were given too late. So as I heard about ivermectin, you know, whenever you as a diligent physician learns about a new treatment, you want to research it. You want to slowly implement it and observe for effect, right? You want to see if you're seeing what other people are seeing and you want to look for side effects and the things to be aware of. So I very slowly started using ivermectin about this time last year. Um, the doses were small and I didn't see a huge response, but around, uh, July, there was another surge in Southwest Missouri. And I really felt like I needed to offer it. You know, I was hearing more and more about the hydroxychloroquine and the ivermectin. And so I felt like I needed to open a clinic and provide early access to treatment because they weren't getting it in their area and the hospitals were getting overwhelmed and they were overflowing to my area in St. Louis. Um, so now that I've dug in, you know, I was in the very end stages of the disease in the ICU. So now I flipped to the very beginning. And when you understand how the disease evolves, early treatment is extremely effective and it's very frustrating that it's not being, being done. Right. Right. And I, I tell you, um, I'm right now day six or seven with COVID and I'm on ivermectin, prednisone, um, azithromycin, and then super mega dosing of CD3, zinc, quercetin. And I'm doing so much better than I was, you know, last Tuesday when I was in bed all day with a fever and not able to get out of bed. And obviously I'm sitting here with you now. I've got a little stuffy head and and a little fatigue, but um, I immediately was able to, but, but not through the mainstream medicine. I mean, when I went to the doctor, it took well, Tuesday when my symptoms were terrible. I talked to a doctor that 
has helped other people and other patients even get out of the hospital that haven't been get, getting great treatment. And she immediately gave me a great protocol. And by Thursday, I had the ivermectin and the other medications. And by yesterday, I was feeling a ton better. Yeah, but yeah. Um, the when I was tested, I, I only tested really to, I was considering monoclonal antibodies and you had to have a positive test. And then I decided I didn't need them and wasn't certain about potential long-term effects. But the doctor at the big clinic basically didn't consult with me, didn't give me any advice. I called them three times on Friday. Finally at 6 p.m. they had put a note on the positive test that came through my portal that said, COVID-19 PCR testing is positive. Please treat with over-the-counter symptomatic treatment, push fluids and increase rest, review quarantine guidelines. So that was it. That's all the advice I got. Okay. So. Yeah. So, and so that's ha it's half right, which makes it completely wrong. Um, so the, the listeners need to understand there's two phases to the illness. The first stage of the illness is a viral illness, right? It's what people have at home that looks like a cold or flu. It's body aches, fever, chills, nasal congestion, sore throat, stuffy ears, and a cough. Um, severe fatigue also and body aches. That's the viral phase of the illness. That's the first five to seven days. And I even have patients who feel better before the seven days is up. But then day seven to 14 is when the virus must die off and it leaves behind uncontrolled blood clotting and inflammation. That is when people get in trouble and that is when people go to the hospital. So I have early warning signs that I educate my patients to watch out for because any signs of cytokine storm, we get extremely aggressive with those steroids and blood thinners and things like that long before their stats drop and their oxygen drops. And we're able now to deliver oxygen to home if they don't get to us early enough. And we're also helping patient, patients, we call it a jailbreak, but get out of the hospital and get, get everything lined up at home so they can come out of the hospital. And just before this, I got a text message that um, a dad was picked up, I think he's in his 60s. Um, his kids went and picked him up from the hospital on Friday on 10 liters oxygen. He's now on two liters oxygen and probably going on to room air just with our basic treatment protocol. Wow. What are those signs that people should look for? Yeah. So starting around day six or seven, you want to watch out for new onset of fevers and chills. Night sweats is a big one. People are soaking through multiple t-shirts at night. Um, the new onset of nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. I think that's all cytokine related. And then there's kind of three phases of the breathing issue. The first is that persistent dry hacking cough. And that's the version that I had the first time. Um, so there's, it's not productive. It's just persistent irritation and coughing. The second is when you take a deep breath in, it triggers you to cough at the top. So you can't really take a deep breath in without coughing. That's an earlier sign. And then a late sign is can't take a deep breath in. So when people tell you they can't breathe, they really mean it because usually our, our lungs are like little microscopic balloons, right? They inflate in and out. But what happens with this and it, one of my pet peeves is they say you have COVID pneumonia. My patients always come back from a chest x-ray and say, I have pneumonia. You don't have pneumonia. You have pneumonitis most likely. So what happens is the little balloons aren't full of pus. That's pneumonia typically. 
But what happens is around those balloons, are they're encased with inflammation. So they no longer can expand normally. That's why patients tell you, I can't take a deep breath or it's burning in my chest. And then you have microscopic blood clotting. So you don't have circulation going through to pick up oxygen. So how, how does the ivermectin help the COVID patient? Yeah, so ivermectin is interesting because it's like the most ideal medication you would have made if you understood this disease process, because not only does it prevent it, it treats early, but it also treats late. And that's because it has 20 different mechanisms of action. So when somebody says, well, it's a horse dewormer and you shouldn't treat with that, that is showing ignorance because no one told ivermectin it was a horse dewormer. That was one mechanism of action that was identified and has been used to save lives and save vision. So it has all these other mechanisms of action that work as well. So one of them is the spike protein on the virus actually attaches to the ACE receptor to get into the cells and cause the infection. So what ivermectin does up front is it blocks the, the spike protein from engaging with that ACE receptor so it can't get in in the first place. And then there's a place where it suppresses viral replication, but late it is a massive anti-inflammatory and it suppresses production of cytokines. So it knocks, it tamps down that cytokine storm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The attack that's uh, been on ivermectin. I had a friend in the hospital and I was trying to find a doctor for him in his area. And I had reached out to another friend and, and uh, he had told me, he said, Oh, well, ivermectin hasn't that been debunked like it was debunked as as some sort of joke you know yeah well and they say there's no studies that prove it's effective um that's actually not true at all a lot of the studies have been censored there's over 60 studies that show efficacy and they bear out in a meta-analysis i read a um a scientific review of four of those studies yeah there are there are randomized controlled trials but when you look at randomized control trials, basically subselects that it has to be this size of person on this day of illness with no other medical issues, right? So they really subselect and tease out a very specific population because they want to look at the at the medication itself. So if you have if you're on day five of this illness, you're going to get this dose of ivermectin. When you look at meta-analyses, right, you pile all these data into one and you analyze it together. That's real life data to me because it's real life is messy, right? Not everybody gets to me by day five. Not everybody's a certain size or a certain weight and not everybody has certain medical conditions. You know, we take all comers and we treat them. So if you take all comers in the data and it still bears out a benefit, that's even more significant than a randomized controlled trial. Sure, sure, that makes sense. Um, you know, I was reading on your website a little bit, and one of the things that struck me was the the very last paragraph of of your bio. It says, uh, "Dr. James has now become an activist for medical freedom, patients' rights to choose, and physicians' right to practice medicine unencumbered." And we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of, um, for one, the mandates, the attack on people's medical freedom, you know, the uh, pressure and the coercion to get these shots. And then the patient's right to choose. I mean, every day I have people reaching out to me, where can I get treatment? My husband's sick. My, you know, they're not doing anything for us at the, the regular doctor or the hospital. And then the physician's right to practice medicine unencumbered. I hear every day about 
physician's license being threatened because they're prescribing ivermectin or things like that. Can you shed some light on that? What, do you, what have you experienced there and what are you seeing? So I have received a letter from the board that a complaint was launched against me and it was dismissed without further investigation. Um, so if you're on any social media, if you're on my Twitter, you can look and find this very easily. Um, there are trolls out there. And what happens is one of them finds you and the mob follows. Right. So a lot of the physicians who have received complaints, luckily I only have the one I'm aware of. Um, most of the complaints are not coming from patients and it's not a patient care issue. There are people who would disagree with the way I practice medicine basically. And that's really not the right forum to take up the way a person practices medicine. And that's usually reserved for number one, evaluating the minimum competency of a physician, right? Based on license, licensure exams, which I'm involved with producing and have been for about 20 years now. Um, once you reach that hurdle of showing you're competent to practice, then they are a safety monitor, right? So if there's alcohol abuse or physical abuse or cognitive issues, so patients with or doctors who have dementia that may still be practicing because it's undiagnosed. Those are the kind of things that the board is meant to handle, not are you, are you prescribing X medication for Y condition, as long as it's not causing harm. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so you haven't had any threats from the board or anything like that? Like I said, I've received one letter. Um, I think I know where that came from. And that's just not the format to debate medical issues. Right. You know, come to the table with data. I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody with how I practice. I've seen now over, I think we're approaching 3000 patients for my clinic just wow. since September. Yeah, this is all we're doing all day, every day. And we're seeing patients in a variety of stages of illness. We have really excellent outcomes. There are a few unfortunate cases that we're aware of that have called us very late or extremely high risk patients. Um, but for the most part, our patients get through staying out of the hospital. I've probably had out of 3000 patients, about 20 end up in a hospital. And most of those have been able to be discharged home. That's amazing. That's amazing. That completely beats the statistics, right? Well, and if, you know, again, my critics, if you're looking at what I'm saying and saying you need to get vaccinated because the hospitals are filling up with COVID patients, it's not my patients. They should be advocating what I'm doing because I'm keeping patients out of the hospital or I'm pulling them out of the hospital. So I'm actually helping the problem. I'm not making it worse with my approach. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that whole filling up with COVID patients. I just listened to something. Uh, I listened to Dr. Fauci, actually. I think I could probably play a clip, maybe if I have it up. Um say something about that for children, you know, and it, it made so much sense here. Just listen to this and tell me what you think. I don't understand why uh, uh, people never took go. the time to learn this, but I think it's a even easier way this to learn is it now anomaly than, uh, Dr. Talking. on left-wing news admitting exactly what we've been trying to tell people for a while. So this is him explaining why children, one of the reasons that children are, you know, in hospitals right now with COVID. But the other important thing is that if you look at the children who are hospitalized, many of them are hospitalized with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. And what we mean by that, if a child goes in the hospital, they automatically get tested for COVID and they get counted as a COVID hospitalized individual. When in fact, they may go in for a broken leg or appendicitis or something like that. So it's overcounting 
the number of children who are, quote, hospitalized with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. So that's kind of, I mean, every patient that's in the hospital that has had a COVID test, it doesn't matter if they're there with a broken arm or a a kidney issue or whatever, it's a COVID patient they're counting it is what it sounds like. Correct. And I I personally witnessed that um, when I was in the ICU. Every, we would get a handful of patients every week that were there for a completely unrelated condition. But since they tested COVID, COVID positive, they came to the isolation unit. Right. So, Interesting. Yeah. Um, they, there was actually somebody, there was, I think it's a physician in New York who elaborated on that further and said that they amplified the concern about children to motivate patients to get vaccinations. So she basically admitted that they had skewed the numbers to scare parents into a medical um, intervention. So I think this is a really important place to talk about kids and talk about a group I'm affiliated with. So I'm part of Global COVID Summit. Um, These are the national leaders in in COVID care. Um, Globalcovidsummit.org is our website and we represent 16,000 physicians and scientists who disagree with the narrative and are making recommendations based on lots of data. And the three points that they have is number one, do not vaccinate children. Children are zero risk statistically from COVID. And so there's no intervention that can improve improve upon 100% survival and zero risk. There isn't a much intervention. I'm pretty sure I took statistics. So that is one of our platforms. The other, there's two others. The next one is patients with natural immunity should not be forced to get a vaccine or required to do so. And we need to recognize natural immunity because there's 160 papers that talk about the the breadth and depth of natural immunity and how durable it is in long-term. The third thing is to let doctors be doctors and practice medicine the way we see fit. Um, So that is what we stand for and represent. They can learn more about that at globalcovidsummit.org. But children do not have the ACE receptors or the TMP RSS receptors in their throat. And so kids, I mean, I think most parents can attest when it comes to the household, the child has a day of sniffles or fever, usually at the most, and then they're bouncing and moving on while the parents and the rest of the household are getting sick. Um, So they do quite well with really just vitamins and supportive care for the most part. Right. And and I've seen so much pressure to get kids uh, vaccinated or these shots, I should say. I mean, even to the point where um, you know, a, a child wants to do it because all their friends have done it and the, the friends' parents are concerned about having them come over or something. So this, we're projecting this fear onto our children, you know, and it's this, it's a weird, it's a weird place to be. I mean, I, I saw somebody on Facebook who would, had, was bragging about, you know, she had told her daughter she was going to take her to some restaurant, yet took her to get her COVID shot instead. And she was so proud of her and she got so much um so many people were were commenting oh great job you're a hero and things like that and yeah. i just couldn't believe it i mean because like you said how do you improve upon zero percent you know yeah. where where is the risk versus the reward on that yep and dr peter mercola speaks on this dr kirk milhone is a pediatric cardiologist who's a member of the group um and basically they've looked at the data and then the risk of a child being admitted for myocarditis is six to seven times higher than a child's risk of being admitted for COVID. 
Wow. Now most parents know that. And also it is illegal for them to advertise a product under EUA. And so what they're doing is they're having big media carry water for them. Um, I think you probably are aware of Sanjay Gupta going on Sesame Street and saying about what, what Big Bird went and got the vaccine or something. Oh my gosh. So the level of propaganda and the depth <clears throat> of that is just unprecedented. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So none of the vaccine ads that you see are paid for by the pharma companies. They're paid for by the public health, our tax dollars for an EUA product, an emergency and, use authorized product. And that kind of brings me to, you know, we had this quote unquote vaccine passport ban bill that was passed in Iowa in the spring and it exempted uh, medical facilities and employers. And some of the discussions I had with our legislators were that we were gonna see a new form of discrimination, medical discrimination, all sorts of issues from that. And, and several of them thought, oops, several of them thought that the free market system would take care of that. But unfortunately, it's not a free market system when we're paying for the propaganda, we're paying for the advertising, we're paying for the distribution. There's no liability when it comes to the vaccine manufacturers or employers. And so there's no risk to them to just go ahead and mandate it and say, oh, you have to take it. And I agreed with them that if, if there was liability and if we weren't paying for the advertising and distribution that it would be fine for them to mandate it because they wouldn't have any employees, you know, they wouldn't have, or they'd have millions of dollars in lawsuits and they'd have to change their policies. But yeah. they're starting to see that now. And we have more legislation being written up that I hope will, will kind of help people get through that. But we've seen so much damage to, you know, losing medical staff and nurses and uh, people being coerced and injured. And it's, it's just been a fiasco. Yeah. So, and people need to realize there is zero public health outcome data supporting a mandate. There's none. There's no data on boosters that support doing those. And there's no, you know, public health policy should ride the rails of data, like a train on the tracks. The tracks are the data, the policy is the train that drives on it. And when you have a separation of that, the train is off the tracks. And that is absolutely what is happening. And just like a train off the tracks, it's a disaster. That is what is happening right now. So all of these people who said we need to vaccinate to end COVID, how on earth can they explain now that we have the highest rates ever? And they're saying that the hospitals are full again, although I question that. Um, you know, where are the outcomes that were promised to people who actually did this? And I am for medical freedom. If somebody thinks that's the best way to boost their immune system, by all means, go for it. However, I don't think people have true informed consent because they don't know the risks because those of us who've been speaking to the risks have been targeted. Yeah, and I can't tell you every time I turn around, somebody I know that's been vaccinated has COVID. And the, oh. and the, the, yeah. uh, their response is, well, you never know how bad it could have been. Yeah, I do because I treat with early treatment and it's not too bad. <laughs> you know, and I have people, it, it lowers the risk of hospitalization and death. It doesn't mean people aren't gonna get sick, right? Right. Um, early treatment. So I do have people that we start early treatment and they still slide into cytokine storm and they don't feel great for a few days, but they're not ending up in the hospital. So mission is still accomplished. If you can be right. treated in your home, you're good. What's this new pill that Pfizer's come out with that's supposed to be 80% effective? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So basically what that medication is, we call it Pfizer-Mectin. Um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> I it has can't one, believe it's not Ivermectin. <laughs> I know, right? Um, it has one mechanism of action in, out of Ivermectin's 20. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So, so, so they could I, patent it. They took maybe a portion of that and then... It just, it has one mechanism of action in common. So um, I'm going to stick with my protocol. It's extremely effective for patients. Um, it's oh. all, it's all repurposed medications. They all have safety profiles that are known. I know exactly what to expect. And I don't have any need to do more expensive medications than what I'm doing. So if you were speaking to, oh, and with that thought, um, one thing I should have mentioned at the beginning of this interview is that Dr. James is going to be at our capital event on January 10th at 10 a.m. speaking with uh, Dr. Artis and a couple other doctors will be speaking. Um, that's January 10th. You can go to www.freeiowa.org to register. Um, and what would you say to our legislators? What do you see the biggest need for right now um, that they, they should be working on? Number one, they need to ban vaccine passports. Um, this is a slippery slide into socialism and social control. Um, there's data now, I think out of England that they're tying, so they have an app with the vaccine passports. And now I heard today they're tying that to, if you um, open up like your social media history and if you open up other things, um, your search browsers and things like that, you actually get more points. That wow. is a scary slippery slope for freedom and independence. And we don't want to go anywhere near that. Um, I actually had a patient in the hospital when I was in the ICU toward the end. I was called to a code blue at 2 a.m. And I had a patient unexpectedly die after a scheduled surgery. Um, so at 3 a.m., I tried to call his wife to notify her. I couldn't reach her on the phone. So I actually called the police to go wake her up at her house. And then so the police woke her up in the middle of the night. I told her her husband had passed away unexpectedly. And her first question to me through her sobs was, my test is expired and I didn't get my shot. Are they gonna let me in to see him? Oh gosh. So how sick is that? And what are we doing to humanity that we are putting people in this position? Um, so we, terrible. It's awful. And we need to get rid of vaccine passports. We need to let doctors be doctors. And actually, um, Daniel Horowitz has developed a list for state legislators because the states are where this is going to happen, right? The federal government is completely off the rails and has disregard for medical bioethics right now, um, for laws right now, um, for the Nuremberg Code. You know, you cannot force people to take an experimental treatment. And basically, that's what they're trying to do. And they're doing that with smoke and mirrors because a lot of people felt forced to get this when it wasn't really a mandate. And the minute the mandates hit paper, you saw all these lawsuits. Right. So now, now nobody really knows what to do because you get an injunction, you get a stay, it's back on, it's off, you know, nobody yeah. really knows. And now schools are mandating their teachers to get it and yeah. anticipation of it being a law, you know, um, it's the same thing that happened with masks. We had a, we had a rally at the Capitol the day that the governor signed the legislation in to prohibit schools from mandating masks. We had wrote 140 letters. We had the mama bears come and speak. And, you know, you saw what happened when there was a stay on that. And I don't think that it's, that's been resolved yet, but 
a lot of the schools stuck to their guns and just kept the no mask policy, but there were some of them that really politicized it and made an effort to go against our governors and our Iowa Department of Public Health's wishes and reinstate them. However, briefly for some of them. The harm to children out of this is so exponential and is so, it's gonna be so long lasting. People have no idea. The mental health impacts, um, the covering of the mouth, the developmental delays that are gonna come from that, the substance abuse, the suicides. I mean, it's an, it's the new epidemic yeah. for a virus that had a zero statistical risk of death for them. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's terrible. Public health isn't one outcome. It's all of the outcomes and balancing risk and benefit. So. So the first thing was end all mandates. What's the second thing? Doctors need protection um, to practice medicine, you know, as long as you are educating your patients, you're providing risk and benefit options, and you have good outcomes, what is the issue? Like I'm using a repurpose medications, I'm using them within the scope, just because a pharmacist doesn't, isn't aware of the data, do they really have the right to block that medication from being filled? I'm having, I work around it now and I can get medicine to anybody within about three to five days, but well, it'd be I, nice if you could just go to your pharmacy the same day and get it correct. when you need the treatment. Correct. I read, I read that you had an issue with Walmart. Is that correct? Um, I've had Walmart is actually um, one of my patients and a, a freedom group is actually filing a, a federal lawsuit against them because he was refused my medications and the pharmacist basically hung up on me when I called to ask why. So wow. Yeah, not very professional. And I, to be honest, I mean, I'm a big fan of Hy-Vee. My family, you know, Sheraton is the hometown of Hy-Vee. I have had Hy-Vee pharmacists and not all of them, but they just box my prescriptions. They just bounce them and refuse to fill them. So Hy-Vee wow. regionally, yep. And I've tried to reach out to corporate to deal with that and find out what the issue is and resolve that. Um, and I haven't made a lot of headway on that. Some Hy-Vees are fantastic. Um, it is widespread. Walgreens and CVS are probably the worst. And in some states, the pharmacists are actually the ones reporting physicians to the board. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So aside from the pharmacies not filling the prescription, what other issues are doctors facing right now with trying yeah. to practice? Um, when I try to get a patient out of the hospital, <clears throat> the amount of pressure they receive not to leave is incredible. Um, they are told basically you can't leave. If you leave, your hospital stay won't be covered by your insurance. Or if you have to come back, your, your insurance won't pay for it. Um, so some of that, I mean, I've been on that side, right? I'm a, I'm a hospital-based doctor. So some of it I do understand. You don't want your patient to leave and have a bad outcome. But if you have a patient who we can meet their needs at home, you would think they would want to support us in getting them out of the hospital and free up a bed for somebody else. I think right. there's a huge, there's a huge conflict of interest when the hospitals are giving a medication for the wrong stage of the disease. So when patients are hospitalized, they're in the cytokine phase, not the viral phase. So why on earth two years in, are we still giving an antiviral when they're in the cytokine phase? That's remdesivir. It doesn't even make logical sense. And I, I had read that that was the worst drug in the study. There were three drugs in the study and that was the one that had the highest mortality and they decided to use that or something. 
they've moved. Yeah, if you listen to the book um, or read the book, The Real Anthony Fauci, um, RFK Jr. goes through a lot and outlines the, the background of remdesivir and how it be, came to be. So the goalposts were moved. Um, it's a repurposed Ebola drug. It's just not needed. But when you realize that hospitals get a $3,000 cutout reimbursement and plus a 20% override on the entire hospital admission, they have a lot of financial incentive to admit patients who may be marginal. Um, so, I mean, these incentives need to be cut down. Yeah. Is there I, an incentive to be on a respirator as well? Yes. And I've always defended that. So again, having been in the ICU, those patients who end up on a ventilator, they were very heavy care patients. Um, they are our sickest patients and they utilized a lot of resources. So I never really had a problem with that. But now when I know how treatable and preventable it is, it makes you question, you know, because I have critics that say, well, you're in business and you charge people for this. And I say, but look at hospitals, hospitals, ref corporate medicine refuses to provide early treatment. And so, which increases the number of patients who are admitted to their hospital. And when you're looking at every patient, it's about a hundred thousand dollars above an extra who has financial incentive in the game there. It's right. certainly not me. <laughs> right, right, right. Is there uh, anything else that you would, you would say to legislators about, you know, challenges that doctors are facing here in Iowa? You know, it's mostly patients, right? I'm okay. here to serve patients. Um, let me practice and I'm good. But patients have the right to mandate their treatment, right? If they want to try ivermectin and it's got a profile of safety, I have no idea why hospitals are fighting that. I don't understand it at all. So let them have the treatment that they want. Right. If, if they want a second opinion from outside, let us help them and let us provide the care that they want, especially right. when they're getting better on that treatment, even right. on the ventilators. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So what, um, what about the VAERS data? Do you know much about that or reports to VAERS or reporting to VAERS? Because it seems like we, and I don't have it up in front of me, but it seems like there's been more um, deaths and hospitalizations reported with these shots than there have in the whole history of VAERS. Correct. Um, it's, it's an exponential growth. So you think about if the government was going to launch a, a widespread experimental vaccine program, the responsible thing would have been to launch an education platform on VAERS, how to report, how to make sure your reports are valid, what things to report, right? That goes hand in hand with an experimental treatment vaccine that you actually want data on. Um, they didn't do that. So when you look through VAERS, number one, a lot of doctors like myself don't generally report vaccine injuries. That is not a common thing that we see in the hospital or in the ICU. That was generally outpatients, doctors, and pediatricians. Um, so most of the hospital injuries are not being reported. Um, the ones that think to report it and it's in their workflow have been disincentivized to do so. Um, to report a VAERS case takes 30 to 45 minutes. And a lot of times the, the forms I'm told time out or they don't get submitted and you actually have to be diligent to go back and make sure that it's submitted again. Um, so people who criticize VAERS as well, it's not medical people. All of the cases submitted to VAERS are reviewed by, I believe it's the CDC. They're charged with vaccine safety. 
I remember doc, Dr. McCullough had said it was weekly verified by the CDC and that 85% of the reports were um, by doctors. Mm -hmm. And right now there's uh, 21,000 COVID vaccine reported deaths. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, 110,000 total COVID vaccine reported hospitalizations. And yeah. So, I mean, and, and according to the Lazarus report or Harvard study, only 1% of all injuries have been reported. Correct. So that's easy. When you see all the filters you have to go through to get a case into VAERS, it's understandable why, right? right. A lot of the doctors aren't doing it. A family who's grieving an unexpected loss isn't always going to, number one, think about that it's related and two, report it. Um, I was in a, C a cardiac ICU. I had 15 patients and four were on ECMO, which is heart-lung bypass after and they were within, one was 60 days out from a shot. Most of them were within seven days of having a vaccine. A shot, I should say. It's not a true vaccine. Wow. That's, that's notable. <laughs> yeah, that's notable for sure. Yeah. And I talked to, talk to people who have had a heart attack in the last 12 months and find out, did you get the shot? And just see what they say. Just ask the question. It's, I think you'll find an interesting answer. I have a neighbor who's a doctor and um, he's a PA and he does the, it's something to do with the heart electrocardio stuff where he, he sees patients and reads their heart diagrams. And um, he was chastised for, he had a very healthy patient come in, had had a heart attack right after their shot had not had any heart issues. And he asked him if he should, he could get his, or should get his booster. And he just said, well, what do you think? you know, and the, the patient reported him for discouraging him from getting his booster. And he was chastised for, for, you know, insinuating that he shouldn't get his booster shot because he'd see, he's seen tons and tons of patients come through with heart attacks or heart issues from what he thought was myocarditis or an issue with the shot. I mean, some of this is common sense, right? And it subselects. If you have an injury from a shot, to your heart that is permanent inflammation and damage and you go get another one right <laughs> makes sense maybe maybe avoid the second one yeah so I mean, what what can people do to you know better find out information i mean because right now you know i'll probably put this on rumble because i'm not sure that it'll make it on youtube I doubt um, it. <laughs> yeah at this point in the conversation, I don't think it will. So where can people find good information on um, treatment, on the truth, on uh, what, what should they be looking for? How should they, I mean, cause you know, if you turn on the TV and you're watching uh, CNN, you think, oh man, I better run out and get a booster or get a shot or something. But um, so first of all, shut off the evening news. Yeah. Um, home for Christmas it was playing and I can't even stand to listen to it because it is all yeah. a big ad so you've got to shut off the evening news that is biased it is not accurate and you know it actually irritated me because one of the major hospitals in Des Moines has a montage of different people like we're tired and we're so sad of telling people they're going to die and there's just nothing we can do and I'm like it's so obvious there is why don't you call me up and I'll tell you what I'm doing and you all can do it too because I'm having really good outcomes so why aren't they like right. the board should look at that and, you know, ask a different question than, than the one we've alluded to so far. Um, so shut off the evening news, 
really good sources. Again, globalcovidsummit.org is a great one. Um, Peter McCullough has a radio show. The FLCCC has a weekly podcast on Wednesday nights. I would encourage people to go sign up for that and get in, get on that weekly webinar. Um, you know, they record all of our conferences that we give. Ryan Cole is an excellent source of information. Um, I have found Twitter. I found if you're really good at Twitter, you can use it as the wisdom of the crowd um, because the minute somebody posts something, other people post counter arguments to it. So you kind of know both sides of the debate pretty quickly. Um, but following, well, I guess not anymore, but people like Robert Malone, um, Peter McCullough, um, Richard Urso, you know, they're posting really good information. Okay. I'll definitely be checking some more of those out. I'm familiar with some of them. Yeah. We don't have a lot on our website because I'm trying not to get censored again. Um, our initial, my initial website was ivermectincan.com. Right, um, right. I saw that. You couldn't find me. <laughs> like, right. Unless you came in from a link you already had, you couldn't find it on Google. So we were completely censored out. So my new website is jamesclinic.com. That mostly talks about just the services we provide. It doesn't talk about how we, you know, the care that we provide or our philosophy beyond just we're advocates for medical freedom. Absolutely. And we don't discriminate either way. Um, you know, if somebody did get a vaccine, most people who did so are just, again, they're trying to do the best thing, right? And they took information that said they're safe and effective. This is how we get through it. So we don't discriminate and we treat patients regardless of what vaccine route they chose. Um, and if you did choose to get a vaccine, you were absolutely a candidate for treatment. And it's a good idea to have that on hand in case you do become ill. And that's, you know, it's important for people to realize that, you know, everybody's trying to make the best decision based on the information they've taken in and they've accepted. So when we have these conversations with folks, we have to be careful not to completely alienate our family and friends and neighbors and loved ones and whatnot. And I mean, I have my family, there's a lot of folks in my family who are vaccinated and they are completely okay with me not being you know, they're completely okay with, with uh, the people having the right to choose. And so we have to really appreciate those folks that are going to take that information, do what's good for them, but not expect us to do that because there's too many that are, you know. Correct. We all have somebody we love and care about that chose that route and that's okay. Yep. That's okay. You know, we, we pray for them and um, let everybody make their own decision and, and see how it goes. So um, I, I people to stop using the terms vaccinated and unvaccinated we are all people and we made a medical choice and the other the other funny thing about that is most people who are opposed to these mandates and these mrna shots have had all their childhood uh you know vaccines and are probably had their schedule most of them and are not anti-vaxxers so it's it's funny when I was called an anti-vaxxer by somebody and I, and I thought, well, I had all my childhood vaccines. I'm not going out against every whatever. It's just this one thing that's, that doesn't make sense to me, you know? Yeah. It's just an easy label to throw on something. I just don't even give that any credence because it doesn't have any place in this discussion. Um, if you look up the definition of vaccine from several years ago, it's now changed. Right. And so if you have a product that doesn't fit the definition instead of changing the product they're changing the definition and that should raise alarm bells for people right right exactly 
Exactly. Okay. Well, is there anything else we've missed? I feel like we've covered a lot of ground during this conversation. We have. So the main thing I just want people to, to be aware of is it's completely treatable. Um, you can have good outcomes just because you end up in a hospital doesn't mean it's going to be a bad outcome. We're pulling people out. As soon as they get to 10 liters or less, we're pulling them out of the hospital. We can get home oxygen lined up and all the medications. And they're so effective. Again, I said, we've got one person that went from 10 liters to two and probably room air in three days. So wow. it is extremely effective. We can help you do that. I recommend for people to have the medications on hand. So we offer prevention consults and I've actually launched a new thing called like a group prevention consult where you can come on and it's an hour long webinar like this. And I review everything you need to know about protecting yourself and your loved ones. And then we send in the prescriptions for them. And they have an hour with me to ask questions and pick my brain. And we really dig into to some things. So get those on hand. I was really lucky. I have a pharmacist that can fill ivermectin for well under $100 into Iowa. They have to mail it. Um, and so I can connect people with the medications. Like stop listening to the noise out there. This is nothing to be afraid of. It's just knowledge replaces fear. Yep. So there is early treatment. You can find it at the jamesclinic.com. Uh, check out globalcovidsummit.org. Um, if you want to check us out, you can find us at iowansforfreedom.org and register for our January 10th event at the Capitol at freeiowa.org. So thanks so much, Dr. James, for being the first in our doctor series coming up to our event and for joining the event. I know it's going to be awesome having you there and people are going to be blessed to hear you speak. So thanks for the preview. I appreciate it so much. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me yeah. on. I look forward to meeting yeah. you. Yeah. Have a blessed day. Iowans for free and we'll see you next time. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Freedom Factor, please share it and subscribe to our channel. There has been an attack on freedom of speech, and there is only one narrative that is currently being accepted in the mainstream media. Any information that is in opposition to that narrative is being censored. So it's up to us to share the truth in every way that we can. Alone, we may only be one drop of water, but together, we are the ocean.